Hello and welcome aboard this island nation, the Maritime Programme. Tom McSweeney here with the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, the tragedy of the last ship to be sunk in Irish waters during World War I. Eight men were killed just 12 hours before submarine attacks were called off. She was completely forgotten about in many ways and overshadowed by uh, bigger tragedies like the RMS Leinster, which happened only 10 days before. So she was the very, very last one. And the National Water Safety Organisation is changing its name because of confusion. Since Irish Water was established in 2013, it has caused Irish Water Safety considerable difficulty. Some members of the public get confused and believe we are Irish Water. As a result of this confusion, we requested that our name be changed to Water Safety Ireland. This island nation is Ireland's maritime radio show, a reflective programme about the sea coming to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yall on the East Cork coastline. I'm bringing together, through the community radio network, the maritime community around Ireland. As darkness descended on the evening of the 21st of October 1918, the small 362-tonne trading coaster, the SS St. Barkin, was heading south from Ayr in Scotland to Dublin with a cargo of coal. Like merchant ships at that stage of the war, she was armed and had escaped a previous torpedo attack six months earlier in the North Channel. This time, the German U-boat UB-94 torpedoed and sank her without warning. All eight crew were killed, their bodies never recovered. It was particularly tragic because, within hours, the First World War was ending and the German U-boat that torpedoed and killed them was recalled to its base. Richard McCormack, former president of the Maritime Institute of Ireland, recalls this sinking with personal feeling because one of his family relatives was killed when the SS St. Barkin became the last ship to be sunk in Irish waters in World War I. He says it has been forgotten, overshadowed by other sinkings, but should be remembered. Yeah, she, she was completely forgotten about in many ways and overshadowed by uh, bigger tragedies like the RMS Leinster, which happened only 10 days before. But between uh, the sinking of the Leinster to the St. Barkin, there were a number of other ships sunk as well. So she was the very, very last one. And what's uh, important about it from my perspective was that a relative of my own was on board it from Inishon and his next door neighbour as well. So it has quite a lot of resonance up around Greencastle, Shrove area of Inishon. So the story of what happened to her, Richard? Well, she was a very small ship. She was a home trade coaster. She's about 360 odd tonnes. 
and uh, she was fairly new, built in 1917. So for the time, she would have been state-of-the-art. And for young men to be on a ship of that nature would have been uh, quite natural. They'd like to be on a decent ship. And she was trading out of places like Derry, over to Glasgow, down to Dublin. And in fact, when uh, she was torpedoed, that's what she, her last trip was into. She was heading to Dublin from air with coal. And uh, she left uh, probably early in the morning uh, of, the, of the 21st which was exactly 11 days after RMS Leinster. She was heading down to the North Channel when she was spotted by a submarine who uh, was on station there, and he'd already sunk one other ship called the Hunston uh, the day before. So he was well prepared for another ship coming down. Uh, it was dark. The attack uh, was without warning because at that stage of the war, uh, there was no question of uh, asking people to leave a ship before you sunk it. They were actually torpedoed uh, as they as they steamed by. So um, she went down and all the crew were lost and no bodies were ever recovered. And the crew was a very interesting mix, uh, probably reflecting the, the, the areas in which she, 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 she was trading with. Uh, the, the captain himself was a, a chap called Donald MacDougall. He was from Scotland. The mate was an Irish man called Mark uh, O'Donnell from Shrove in Inishon. And his next door neighbour was an able seaman, um, was Thomas Leo McLaughlin, a relative of my own. In fact, my great great grandfather would have been his uncle. So he was a young man, only 24 years of age. Uh, they had a, a, a tragedy in another sort because the chief engineer on it was a chap called uh, James Bradley and his son, who was a fireman, he was 18 years of age and he was lost as well and they came from Paisley in Scotland and then there was a second engineer called Daniel Vernal from Paisley as well so there was obviously connections with various towns. There was a, a fireman called Patrick Gilbraith, only 19 years of age and he was from Spring Hill, Glenarm, County Antrim. And there was also an able seaman called William Rice, who was 50 years of age, and he was from Rings End in Dublin. So that was the crew, um, and as I said, there was no attempt to recover the bodies. She's only four miles off St John's Point Lighthouse in County Down, and uh, that lighthouse is obviously operated by the Commissioners of Irish Lights and... Only a couple of months ago, the Commissioners of Irish Lights gave me permission to put a memorial to the crew, the entire crew lost up there, which I think um, I'm very grateful for. Uh, I have to raise the money for it, and there's a few matters of planning and so forth to be attended to. It will be done next year at some stage. So it was an interesting to find out a little bit more about the submarine. She was only four months old. Her designation was UB94, and she had had uh, a sort of a mixed uh, voyage with a lot of mechanical problems. And she had fired at one ship uh, at the entrance to the North Channel and missed her completely. And the next thing was she came upon a ship called the Hunston, which was a 3,000-tonner steamer. And once again, she sunk her. She was quite close to the uh, Strangford Light Boy. She was only a mile off it. And there was one of the crew lost on her as well. But the sad and tragic part, I suppose, for the men on the St. Barkin was they were sunk in darkness, which probably descended around four o'clock or maybe even earlier at that time of the year. And at 4.30 the next morning, uh, Lieutenant Commander Howman, who was the officer in charge of that ship, he received command from the Imperial General Admiralty, ordering every single submarine to cease hostilities and return to base. 
and uh, she eventually got back safely to their base in Helgoland on the 2nd of November 1918. One thing, Richard, that strikes me, those who went to sea in ships like that had to be very courageous to seafarers because at the time, as you were saying, there was no warning at all if they were attacked. Yeah, um, I suppose in a way they would have been uh, fully aware as seamen that going to sea on a ship like that, that they were really uh, were in the eye of the storm if they happened to come across a submarine out to do its business, uh, which was to kill other people. Um, and you must remember it wasn't long after uh, the Dundalk. I think the Dundalk was on the 14th of October and there was 20 lost in her, uh, 12 survivors. So there were a number of um, smaller ships it just happened to be unfortunate uh, uh, running into a submarine at that time, so close to the end of the war. And uh, the SS Embarkin was, was one of them. And from my point of view, um, I think it's extremely important that we memorialise these people. Um, every year, as you know, the Maritime Institute of Ireland um, holds uh, a service at the City Key Memorial, which ostensibly was set up for the people lost during World War Two, but we've extended it out to all wars. Uh, and I actually raised this as a subject at that particular uh, event, and I think it's important that it does. And also the Inishon Maritime Museum and Planetarium in Greencastle has a memorial outside, the, uh, just on the green outside the museum there, and these names are on it as well. And it's a sort of a, an ironic place because, or an iconic place if you want to put it that way, because uh, during the Second World War, my uncle, um, Liam Cormick, who came from Greencastle, was in bed with TB, and he says he remembers the German submarine surrendering in front of our house and the crews being taken off by Royal Navy personnel and brought into McGillingham. There was a camp there. Richard McCormack of the Maritime Institute of Ireland telling the story of the SS St. Barkham, the very last ship to be sunk in Irish waters before World War I ended. A ship which has personal family memories for him, in which, just 12 hours from what would have been their safety, the crew of eight of that ship were killed. There has been a lot of discussion recently about the loss of species of mammals, birds, reptiles, even insects worldwide. Some threatened, according to reportage, with extinction. What exactly is happening offshore in the oceans and in Irish coastal waters? The chief executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, Dr Simon Barrow, raises these questions now from their headquarters in Kilrush, County Clare. He calls for local management groups with real powers relinquished from Dublin to coastal communities to be set up and says that public response to the National Marine Spatial Plan has been disappointing. There is a lot of talk about biodiversity, especially biodiversity loss, with both species and habitats declining worldwide. The World Wildlife Fund estimate that between 1970 and 2010, populations of mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians and fish declined globally by 52%. More recently, it has been reported more than a third of the world's insects are threatened with extinction in the next few decades. These reports and predictions are largely concerned with terrestrial species. But how is our marine biodiversity faring? Information on biodiversity loss in our marine waters is scarce. Why is this? 
Collecting data on marine biodiversity, especially in deep offshore waters, but also along our coasts, is much more difficult to obtain than on land. So despite our marine waters being 10 times greater in area than the terrestrial landmass, we don't have sufficient knowledge to assess the magnitude of this issue. The most successful conservation actions are those that are supported by key stakeholders. Who are the relevant marine stakeholders in Ireland? There are no fences in the sea delimiting ownership. Coastal communities, fishers, shipping, aquaculture, marine tourism or renewables, maybe everybody. Consultation with stakeholders is not sufficient. Engagement requires an ability to influence decisions and actions. Too often consultation is not engagement as there is no tangible influence. A lot has been made of the recent consultation on the implementation of the Marine Spatial Planning Directive which has recently been through a consultation process. Despite a positive spin by the department, the number of submissions was disappointing for something of such importance for our marine waters. Biodiversity protection and enhancement must be incorporated into all marine activities and is the responsibility of all stakeholders. Effective marine management requires establishing local management groups with real powers to make decisions and to act. This requires a relinquishing of power from Dublin to our coastal communities. Can this happen? Will biodiversity issues be central to all marine planning? Hopefully the MSP directive once rolled out will provide real power to those local stakeholders who can ensure protection and enhancement of our marine biodiversity is at the heart of all activities. This is Dr Simon Barrow of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group for This Island Nation. And now Justin Marr has a roundup of other maritime news from home and overseas waters. The European Union has announced that an EU-wide ban on pulse trawling will be introduced in 2021. The controversial practice includes sending electric signals to stun and startle fish away from the seabed before scooping them up in nets. EU member states can choose to immediately prohibit or restrict the practice within their coastal waters. The 2021 date for the EU-wide ban was decided upon to allow time for the sector to adapt. Catches with pulse trawling were officially banned in 1998, but a system of derogation set up in 2006 has allowed the practice to continue. Kinsale Yacht Club has objected to plans for a mussel farm just off Dock Beach. Woodstown-based shellfish have applied to run a 61-acre mussel farm on the waterbed in front of Charles Fort and Dock Beach. David O'Sullivan, Commodore of Kinsale Yacht Club, says that the farm's location is the issue. This public realm amenity area is already very well used by the existing users and we find it hard to understand how we're going to accommodate a fish farm within the existing usage that is already taking place. We have plenty of fish farms in, in Kinsale, so this is not really a principal objection to the concept of fish farming. Far from it, we welcome fish farming and we have to get on with all users of the ocean and the sea. But it's just this particular location we regard as unsuitable for fish farming because of its intensive um, nature use that's already long established in this area. We're not looking for exclusive use of this area. We're looking for the intensive usage that it already has to be maintained. You can find out more about the Yacht Club's objection at their website, kyc.ie. 
Thousands of seabirds have been washing onto the Dutch shoreline over the past month. Roughly 20,000 guillemots have died off the coast of the Netherlands, an estimated 10,000 on beaches, plus another 10,000 that are likely still at sea. So far, veterinary pathologists have autopsied around 16 birds and have found no trace of obstruction or poison, just emaciated birds with empty stomachs. Mardik Leopold, a biologist at Wageningen University, says that it's a real Dutch problem. Belgium and the east of Germany do not seem to be affected by the issue. The Minister for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Michael Cree TD, has announced the introduction of a science-based catch, tag and release fishery for bluefin tuna for Irish recreational anglers. The aim of the project is to learn more about the behaviour of bluefin tuna off the coast of Ireland. Previously, Ireland's lack of a bluefin tuna quota had prevented targeted angling for bluefin tuna. The Marine Institute and the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority are currently working on a pilot project that will allow up to 15 angling vessels with trained operators to target the tagging of bluefin tuna this year. Finally, the colour of the world's oceans could change by the end of the century, according to a new study. The study, which was published in the journal Nature Communications, claims that the world's oceans will be bluer and greener thanks to a warming climate. At the heart of the phenomenon lie tiny marine microorganisms called phytoplankton, which are crucial to ocean food webs and to the global cycling of carbon, and sensitive to the temperature of ocean waters. Climate change will see phytoplankton bloom in some areas, while reducing it elsewhere, leading to subtle changes in the ocean's appearance. The study reports that projected warming of the planet by 3 degrees Celsius will cause multiple changes to the colour of the oceans. The National Water Safety Organization, Irish Water Safety, IWS, is changing its name because it's being assailed by angry and frustrated members of the public complaining to it about water supplies. Irish water has been causing the difficulties and confusion in the public mind, as John Leach, chief executive of the organization, explains from his office in Galway. Since Irish Water was established in 2013, it has caused Irish Water safety considerable difficulty. Some members of the public get confused and believe we are Irish Water. Depending on what difficulties the public are experiencing with their water, we can take up to 15 or 20 phone calls a day from angry and frustrated members of the public who have water supply problems. As a result of this confusion, we requested to our partner department, Rural and Community Affairs, that our name be changed to Water Safety Ireland. The Minister with Responsibility for Irish Water Safety, Michael Ring TD, has agreed to go ahead and sign a new statutory instrument which will change our name to Water Safety Ireland. We are confident that it will help the public differentiate between the two statutory bodies. This in turn will help us grow our brand profile and promote water safety campaigns that will target the at-risk members of the public so that we can further prevent drownings. The most tragic drownings last year took place in a disused quarry on the outskirts of Ennis in early May, as the country enjoyed the warmest summer since 1976. The two 15-year-old boys were swimming with their friends in a disused quarry when the two boys got into difficulty. Their friends did their utmost to save them, but were unable to as the water was too cold, 
too deep and they did not have the necessary life-saving skills to effect a rescue from deep water. The coroner, John McNamara, returned a verdict of accidental death due to drowning. He recommended that ring boys be placed at the site in case somebody else gets into distress in the future. During the summer, the Ennis Rugby Club ran a fundraising event and the Keneally family generously made a substantial donation to Irish Water Safety to go towards the education of children in our schools on water safety and essential life-saving skills. I have spoken before of the importance of our primary schools teaching the Irish Water Safety Primary Aquatics Water Safety Programme. Every child leaving primary school needs to be able to recognise the risks around all our aquatic environments and be able to effect simple rescues with the use of a ring boy and all children should be able to swim and have basic survival and rescue skills. This will help them to avoid a drowning situation arise and also allow them save somebody else's life should they find themselves in distress in the water. So until next month, enjoy your aquatic activities and always wear a life jacket on or near the water and use your influence to further reduce the number of drownings on our island nation. The next subject is all about rats. Now, that may be a distasteful one, but it's an important one. And it's particularly about brown ones, which have devastating impacts on native wildlife on our inshore islands. Dr Stephen Newton is the Senior Seabird Conservation Officer at Birdwatch Ireland and from their headquarters at Kilcool in County Wicklow outlines how they're battling against this problem. Incidentally, he told us that black rats, one of the two species with the brown ones, which have been a long time in Ireland, introduced either deliberately or accidentally by humans, have virtually disappeared except from Lambay Island and that's off Dublin. But brown rats are a serious problem. On the east coast, brown rats are present on virtually all the larger inshore islands. The Skerries Islands, Lambay, Islands Eye, Dorky Island and Great Saltee. Little Saltee is the exception and is reputedly rat-free. Most of these islands have diminishing populations of puffins and manxia waters and non-hold European storm petrels, a species which occurs quite widely on Welsh islands on the other side of the Irish Sea. Islands around the world, especially in tropical and subtropical climes, are renowned for their biodiversity and historically have hosted many unique species. These are being lost rapidly to introduced mammals, particularly rats. A country at the forefront of the push to rid itself of non-native mammals is New Zealand. Authorities there are committed to eradicating them on both smaller islands and on the mainland North and South Islands by 2050. An amazing challenge. The New Zealanders' ambitious programme to save their native species has spawned an innovative industry of deploying toxic baits, systematic trapping and so on, and this has been exported across the globe to remove rats, rabbits, mink and many other species from sensitive sites, usually islands, for the benefit of seabirds. One recent successful eradication programme has involved the removal of rats from the large mountainous subantarctic island of South Georgia, Closer to home, rats have been removed from the islands of Canna and the Shants in Scotland, Lundy in the Bristol Channel, England, Ramsey Island in Pembrokeshire, Wales, and several of the Scilly Islands off Cornwall. At all these islands, there have been spectacular recoveries or recolonisation of Manxia waters and European storm petrels, with parallel improvements in floral diversity. 
When it comes to rodent eradication from islands offshore islands, ambition and funding has not been terribly forthcoming to date. But the ongoing EU-funded Rosie Turn Life programme has allocated funds to the removal of rats from Dorky Island in South County Dublin for the benefit of nesting terns. If we can keep this island and its satellites rat-free, then other burrow nesting and crevice nesting species could potentially settle there. Who knows, we might even one day have puffins nesting on Dorky Island. Birdwatch Island, assisted by our UK partners from the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, is currently baiting rats on a 50 by 50 metre grid across Dorky Island, and this will continue until March. Following that, we will use non-toxic bait and flavoured treats in combination with trail cameras to help us ascertain that they are really all gone. We are aware that recolonisation from the mainland is always a possibility, so we have to be vigilant and enforce strict biosecurity measures so that we can respond promptly if any signs of return are discovered. We thank the EU Life Programme for funding and Dunleary Rathdown County Council for permission to undertake this eradication as part of the Dorky Island Conservation Plan. Dr Stephen Newton, Senior Seabird Conservation Officer at Birdwatch Ireland, dealing with the problem of brown rats. In our next edition, fresh water is identified as carrying the threat of microplastics into the marine environment. Of course, the whole story about plastics in the environment, which then slowly moved towards microplastics, the smaller plastics, is a marine story, essentially a marine story. But a lot of those plastics come from the freshwater environment, so they come down our rivers, enter the, uh, the marine environment. Professor Marcel Janssen of University College Cork will be discussing the threat of microplastics in the next edition of This Island Nation, the Maritime Programme, produced here at CRY 104FM Yall on the East Cork coastline, with production and technical supervision by Justin Marr. The programme is broadcast nationally through the community radio network around Ireland in Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South, on Dundalk FM, on Athlone Community Radio, in Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM, in Clare on Radio Kirk of Moshkeen and in Limerick on West Limerick 102 FM. There are podcasts on iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, Spotify and the Marine Times website www.marinetimes.ie and there's a special edition for visually impaired listeners through the National Council for the Blind. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime Community on Community Radio. You can contact the programme on email to thisislandnation at gmail.com or by phone or text to 0872 555 197. That's email, thisislandnation at gmail.com, phone or text 0872 555 197. And every week you can read the This Island Nation blog on our Facebook page. All listeners and readers, all very welcome. Until our next programme, from me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing.